So I want to talk this morning, almost this afternoon, but I want to talk about the life of faith that trusts. Uh, when we lived in Germany, we moved there in 2004, and my favorite basketball player in the world was a guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name is Dirk Nowitzki. Um, his home nation is called Germany, and now I'm living in Germany, and, and I'm excited about meeting other Germans who love basketball and love their national hero named Dirk. Well, I never met one German who thought Dirk was their favorite player and had Dirk as their favorite player. I never met one of them. They thought he was a really good player. And what I had come to find out was this, and it's exactly what we see in the text today. They were so familiar with Dirk. He had grown up there. They had grown up seeing videos on the news. This young kid who's tall and could shoot and and all that. They had grown up, and they were so familiar with him that they, he didn't really move them anymore in, in regard to superstardom, and, and even though he was definitely a superstar. And so we're going to see today that um, this was happening with Jesus when he went back to the home area that he had grown up in. They were familiar with him, and it caused them to miss out on who he was. And so in chapter 4, verse 42 if you'll look there just for a second, it says, They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so in Samaria is the first really large affirmation in regard to Jesus being the Savior of the world. And so the question is, will this be seen in Galilee? Will the Galileans respond to Jesus in the same way that the Samaritans did? And I love the next Part the first part of verse 43, and after the two days he departed for Galilee. He stayed two more days with the Samaritans, this outcast people who had been rejected, uh, which reveals his comfort and his care for them, for those who have been labeled um, as not having any dignity and having any significance. Jesus was willing to stay with them for two more days. And I tried to picture him this week of what those two days must have been like. And I picture him sitting down outside their homes and drinking some water, eating with them. I picture him asking them, tell me your story. And having them talk about their family history and story and, and teaching them. I picture him in the marketplace, you know, laughing with some of the people that are there. He stayed two more days, which, which just indicates um, the incredible tender care that Jesus had um, with these people. And so if you look now in uh, 43, we read it a while ago, but let's read 43 and 44 again. And so after those two days that he remained, he departed for Galilee. That's where originally they were going. And then 44 is a little bit different. It may seem a little bit out of place. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So I want to talk just briefly for a moment about the danger. And I've had trouble with this word. You ever look at the language and go, why did we put all of those syllables in some of these words? But I've had trouble with it all morning. Familiarity, familiarity. I don't know. Even, see, I can't even say it. It's just difficult. But let me, I want to I just touch on why sometimes it's difficult when we're so familiar with something to continue to be wowed by it. Now, I have, since, since 1993, I've been studying an Old Testament chapter is my favorite chapter. Does anybody have an idea of what that Old Testament chapter is? What? 
Psalm chapter 23. If you've ever heard me do my sheep and shepherd. So I've been studying Psalm chapter 23 since 1993. And I tell you, um, I, I, I've got a folder. I found it this week. It's, a, it's about this thick. It's about this thick of articles. I just printed out. I've stuck in there thinking, okay, one day I'll add that into my Psalm th- you know, 23 thing and, and just expand stuff. And so since 1993, all the research I've done, I still yearly will go online and listen to, I'll type in Psalm 23 sermon, and I'll listen to some guy somewhere in America preach on Psalm chapter 23. Or sometimes I go to some of these preaching sermon websites, and I'll read a sermon on Psalm chapter 23. And there is never since 1993 that I've listened to a sermon or read a sermon that I have not heard or seen something that I myself in all my study have not seen. And it just shows how alive and how deep God's Word is. There's a great danger in our lives when we become so familiar with the stories that we're like, yeah, I got that one down. I know that one. I mean, how many times have we heard this one? You know, here's this this great story. This guy comes and he wants Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, go. And and we're like, yeah, I I got the point of that. And so what I want us to not do this morning It's to approach the scripture like, okay, I got that story. I kind of got it down because the danger in being so familiar with Jesus is that we actually miss the heart of the matter and what is actually being taught. And when we do that, then we miss honoring Jesus and giving him the honor that he's actually due because of what's actually there. So I, I hope and pray this morning at the end, you'll be like, yeah, I've been reminded of how awesome and how grand and how great that he is. And so if we ever get to the place where we are no longer in awe at the revelation of Jesus in a story or in a passage, then we will naturally find ourselves not moved that much to worship him and to honor him. And so we're going to see today the danger that accompanies being so familiar with Jesus. So look at me now in 45 and 46. And let's talk about Jesus being welcomed in Galilee, but they not um, believing in him. So 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. That's a positive thing. It's not a negative thing, but they don't go any further than that. So they welcomed him because they had been in Jerusalem as well at the feast, and they'd seen everything that he did, and so they had gone to the feast. So 46 says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So John 4, 4 tells us that when they come to Samaria, it says, and he had to go through Samaria. That word there means this was a supernatural, divine-led direction to go through Samaria so that Jesus would meet the woman, so this town would be transformed. It is the exact same word that it says in the first part of 45, so when he came to Galilee. So what we're about to see is a father-initiated, God-ordained, Um, encounter that Jesus is going to have in this text with the Galileans and also with this with this man and so it says that the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done at at Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast I want you to go back a couple chapters to chapter two for a second and I want to remind us of what we were told at the very end of chapter two at that feast that Jesus was at Jesus saw their belief and he saw that it wasn't really full-hearted belief 
Um, and so in John 2, 23 through 25, we get a little insight that we've got to connect with uh, 4, 45. So when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what himself, what was in man. So here Jesus is at the feast in John chapter 2. He's doing these incredible miracles. He is teaching. People are giving affirmation and they are believing in his name because of the signs and the miracles that he's doing. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because they were not looking at him in the right kind of way. They were formulating an idea. And there's no indication there at the end of chapter 2 that anybody was coming and saying, gosh, you are the Savior of the world. They were believing in his name, and they were giving affirmation, but they were not coming to bow down before him. And so he comes back to Galilee now. It's been a little bit of time, and he's coming to Galilee, and they welcome him. Oh, Jesus, man, it was so great seeing what you did and all the stuff that you said back in Jerusalem. But it's not enough to welcome Jesus if it is grounded in a shallow faith. Watch. They were believing and welcoming him, but nobody was doing this. There was no bowing before him. There was an affirmation. This guy must be a teacher from God, just like Nicodemus talked about in John chapter 3. He's a great teacher. He's a great miracle worker, but nobody was coming to bow. But if you remember back in Sychar, nobody in Sychar and Samaria was looking for Jesus to come. So he reveals himself to a woman at the well. She believes. She goes into the town and says, He told me all that I ever did. Come out and let's see him. So they come out. Jesus spends two more days with them teaching, and they eventually affirm and say that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So in Samaria, he received this great welcome, watch, that ended in faith and salvation. So he's welcomed once they know who he is. It ends in faith and salvation in Samaria. But when he comes to Galilee, they welcome him, but there's no faith and salvation. There's no coming and bowing. There's no tell us more. We want to believe. There's literally none of that. And this is the danger that comes when we are so familiar with the things that are there. And there's a great danger in our lives as well when we only come to Jesus in a point of desperation. That, that is a little bit of a flaw. And now sometimes those moments force us to come um, to seek him. But it takes a little bit of um, thinking and insight to see what is going on here. And, and it causes us watch, to contrast the welcoming and the faith and belief in Samaria, but now the welcoming that doesn't end up in faith and belief in Galilee. And so you have to put 4, 39 and 42 through 42 together with chapter 4, 44 and 45 to understand the context. In Samaria, he is unknown and then embraces the Savior. In Galilee, he is known, he is welcomed, but he is not embraced as the Savior. So the Galileans didn't outright reject Jesus. They just showed some interest and welcome. This is a really great guy, but it only went so far in their lives. No one came, as I've said a while ago, to come and to bow at his feet. No one came and called him the Messiah. They were excited about him being there, but that was as far as it went. 
It did not go further than the excitement of things that they had seen already in Jerusalem. It did not elicit faith in the moment by the people in him. And I believe that so many people in the Western church are just like that. So let me give some examples. Could this be many in the church? Excited, okay, about, yeah, that church stuff, pretty cool. And it sounds like stuff like this. Man, I like the songs and the music. I like the morality that's spoken of at church. Boy, the life lessons and stories are found in Scripture. They are so good. Some people come to church and they like the drawings the kids have and they run out and, hey, look, Mom and Dad, look what I did from the children's ministry. Some people really like the feel and the sense of Christian community and being around conservative people. Some people like serving in a place that's good and noble like the church. And then some people come to church because it's reputable, it's traditional to our American values. And so, man, this is, this is a great place. But what happens is, is that is all that it ever becomes without really desiring to know Jesus and repent of sin. Then the feeling and the enticing and the good emotions about all of that actually ends up being nothing. And so here, here Jesus comes back to the place that he had grown up. They welcome him, but there's no repentance and no belief. And so if one does not repent, then the excitement and good feelings ultimately mean nothing because it won't last. Fundamentally, it is still a rejection of Jesus when faith never comes. And so let's learn about faith. And so they welcome him. They don't believe. They just like, okay, this guy does some great stuff, says some great things. But now we meet a man in 46, the last part of 46 and 47. Let's read that together. So Jesus is in Cana. 20 miles away is a city called Capernaum. So at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. And so Jesus has been back in Galilee for enough time for somebody in Cana to walk the 20 miles or to ride the 20 miles on a horse or a donkey to Capernaum and say, hey, that guy that was doing all those powerful things who's from our region, Jesus of Nazareth, he's now down in Cana. So the royal official hears about this and he thinks, man, there's that guy that everybody's been talking about. He healed the blind. He did these incredible miracles. People that couldn't walk now are walking. I wonder if he can heal my son because my son I know is on the verge of death. And so the man makes a decision. I'm going to leave Capernaum, and I'm going to walk, or I'm going to ride, whatever the case may be, and I'm going to go the 20 miles down to Cana, and I'm going to ask this guy named Jesus if he'll come back with me. And so then we're going to, we're going to have 40 miles under our belt. Boy, the steps on our app are going to tell us, boy, man, we've exercised really well, and boy, we have gotten after it. And so, so he's like, I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to go down there and, and, uh, and try and convince him to come back with me to Capernaum. There are moments and times in our life that are of such desperation that drive us to Jesus. And I tell you, I've seen it in my lifetime. All kinds of people come in moments of crisis, even people who have mocked Christ in the past. I've had people through the years who say, I'm not a believer in Jesus. They're either agnostic or um, some have even claimed to be, you know, um, don't believe in God at all uh, to get a text in a moment of crisis for them to say, Hey, will you pray for me? Which is always an interesting thing to get from someone who doesn't affirm. But I, it, it happens 
literally all the time. Because here's what happens. Eventually, you will get to a place where you cannot find a solution. You cannot find a rescue. And so you've got to look outside of yourself. And that's where this man is. He's a royal official. We believe that likely he is high up in King Herod's court. So all of his access to the best doctors, all of his money, all of his connection with other people cannot bring healing to his son. He's heard about the man that was in Jerusalem. He's 20 miles away. So let me ask everybody in the room this morning this question. If the hope of the healing of your kid was 20 miles away, what would you do? Would you stay home or would you go? You'd go. This is exactly what the man does. That 20 miles is not so far. It's a desperate moment. It's a crisis moment. So we get something together probably. I don't know what the case may be, but he's just gone, and he's walking to Cana from Capernaum. And sometimes it takes the swallowing of our pride to come and admit that we cannot handle the situation and we cannot find the solution. And there's moments of desperation and hunger to, to come and hear from Jesus that is, that is really, really powerful. So I want to ask us all a question this morning in the room. Is there anything in your life right now, anything in your life, something with a kid, something with a parent, something with a friend, something in a marriage, some kind of moment that would cause you and I to be so desperate to do whatever we could to get to Jesus. And here's this man. He swallows his pride. He's a royal official. He's got money. He's got connections. He's in the king's court. And yet he can't fix what's going on with his son. And so it drives him to walk the 20 miles to get to Cana to come to Jesus. And so the option before us is when these moments happen, we're either going to stay in Capernaum and just hope for the best, We're going to do what we can do to get into the presence of Jesus and beg Him and ask Him to come and to do something about it. And when the text says this, it says that He went to Him and He asked Him to come down and heal His Son. In the Greek, this word ask is in a tense that means this. He didn't stop asking Jesus. So when He finally got to Cana and He found Jesus somewhere, He continued to say this, Will you come? Will you come? Will you come? Will you come? My son is about to die. I am asking you, will you come back with me? And will you come and will you heal my son? And the man had gotten to the point where he knew he had no power to fix this. So he had to look beyond his connections. He had to look beyond his influence. And and you and I must get to that place as well where we get to the place where we simply trust. Now, we're all big people in the room. I had children last. I didn't want to step on Christmas traditions last service in the first service. So there's this thing out there. I don't get it, and I'm not. I'm sure Joe Farr is really into this, knowing Joe Farr. It's called Elf on a Shelf. And I just have seen Elf on the Shelf. He's one night, he's here, and you and I know that the parent... Bailey, did you know that your parents, if you have that, they actually move it. It doesn't move on its own. Okay, okay. But anyway, so, so it moves. And, and I think sometimes in our lives, we have a Jesus on the shelf. And we just take him down when we need him. And then when we don't need him, he's just so meek and mild and gentle. We kind of put him back in there. And when we need him, we'll come back later on and we'll pull him down again. And I want to remind you and I, he doesn't sit on a shelf. He sits on an eternal throne. 
as the sovereign ruler over the universe. And he's got the power to do anything in the world and anything in our lives. Now, he's not going to give us all of our wildest dreams. It's not the way it works. This is a broken world. Broken things happen in a broken world. But I can tell us this, that he will give you his goodness in the midst of the brokenness. And so here's this man, desperation. He comes to Jesus, kind of like Jesus on a shelf. He's going to come and kind of pull him down and, and, uh, and ask and Jesus to do something. Now look at 48. 48 kind of sounds like, gosh, Jesus, kind of calm yourself down a little bit. Man, what are you so fired up about? The man's, do you, do you not understand? The man is desperate. His son is dying. So look at Jesus' response to, will you come back with me to Capernaum and heal my son? Here's what Jesus said. It wasn't a yes or a no. It was said to him. So he looked him right in the eyes and said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not Believe, and I believe that he's speaking to two groups that day, specifically to the man, because that's what was in the man's heart. The man just wanted a sign. Yes, he was desperate. Yes, he came to the right place, but his faith wasn't there to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and I also want to remind us of this. Jesus wouldn't say these words if it wasn't what? True in the man's heart, right? The man was just looking for a sign. He wasn't, he wasn't looking to place his faith and repent of his sin He just, again, came to the right place in a moment of crisis. And so when Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man did not come to believe. He just wanted a sign. He just wanted Jesus to do something in his life. And so Jesus, watch, rebukes the man and the Jewish people for their interest in Jesus, not for one of belief, but for one of superficial reasons of seeking him. And neither the man nor the Galileans were seeking him because they wanted to worship or become a follower. And so Jesus is not being harsh here. He's not. Jesus knows this, that the man has a greater need in his life than his son being healed. And what the man needed is he needed salvation. That was the greater need. And so Jesus was going after that. And I tell you, signs and wonders are good for God to do. Jesus did them. But they are not to be the sole criteria and foundation of our faith to move us to a place of maturity we cannot rely on signs and wonders and supernatural things to keep believing and growing they can help lead to faith they did lead to faith in the gospels but they will not keep us pursuing jesus for if that was the case then the old testament jews would have never had any issues in exodus chapter 19 and 20 They literally heard the voice of God thundering from the mountain. Do you know what happened within that 40 days? You know what they were building as Moses was up on the mountain and God was speaking and giving the Ten Commandments? They were building a golden calf and worshiping it within 40 days of seeing all that. Well, to me, this has always been amazing. Everywhere they went when they left Egypt, they would look up in the sky and God's presence was a cloud. When they moved at night, it was fire in the sky. Not a lightning storm, but fire in the sky, a pillar of fire in the sky leading them on in the darkness. 
They walked beside walls of water through dry ground on the other side of the Red Sea only to all get there and watch the Egyptian army come down and God crash and collapse those walls. They saw that. Every morning they got up, there was bread on the ground. They saw things that you and I will never ever see, signs and wonders, and they still turned away. And this is the trouble today. Mark was sharing with me a verse, I mean a verse, a a song that's real popular on Christian radio right now. I've not heard it, but it's all about you know, God, I'll, I believe in you because you do signs and wonders. God, I believe in you and signs and wonders. And I think one of the things God looks down at the Western church and he just says this, is there anybody who just wants me? Now, he's always going to do great things. That's who God is. But there's, there's got to come a time in our life where we want him more than the things that he does. Now, contrast Galilee and Samaria. Samaria believed, watch, without a miracle. He didn't do one miracle in Samaria, and a whole town of Sychar came to faith without one single miracle. See, Jesus was not enough for the Galileans, but he was enough for the Samaritans. The people wanted sensational miracles. And again, Jesus had been enough for the Samaritans. They believed without any miracles. And there's so many people today that are connected to the church. And they are need-proof people. Give me proof. Give me proof. Give me proof, God. Continue to give me proof, God. And I will continue to believe in you when you and I must come to a place where the revelation of God in Scripture is enough for us to believe. And I know and you know that Jesus brings so much to our lives but i believe one of the purest forms of love back to him is grounded in finding him as enough without all the extra things that he just simply is enough and if we're not careful in our lives we will develop a faith that is only real in a crisis moment that never shifts to a place that in the good days of my life i'm going to pursue jesus just like i'm doing in the crisis moments. John and Jesus are calling us to have a faith that goes beyond a Galilean kind of faith. And so this royal official, Jesus rebukes him. He says directly to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Again, I want to remind you, Jesus is not being harsh here. He's just being honest. This man has not come to believe in Jesus. He just wants Jesus to do something for him now faith is going to come because jesus meets us where we are but i want to touch on one other thing before we wrap up the story john chapter 2 jesus goes to a wedding celebration i think wedding celebrations are supposed to be happy right they're supposed to be exciting and happy joyous occasions and so at this wedding celebration jesus they run out of wine jesus tells them to fill up these water for purification uh, jars and And he turns the the water into wine and the celebration and the joy continues at this. And so what I want to say to us is this. John, the writer, he connects both of these miracles. So in verse 54, at the end of chapter 4, he says this was now the second miracle that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. It was there. The first one was at a good thing, at a wedding. Everybody celebrated. And it says in John chapter 2 that the disciples, after that miracle, believed in jesus it increased their faith with that miracle now we come to john chapter 4 
And this is not a wedding celebration. This is not something to celebrate. A, a boy is dying. He's dying. He's not going to live. Doctors can't fix him. Money can't fix him. Connections can't fix him. And so in that moment, do we love Jesus enough to continue to trust in him as well? And so in every moment of our lives, and I think that's the fifth point in there, we must trust in Jesus in the joys and in the sorrows of our lives. Sorrow, got good news for you this morning, is going to continue to be a part of your life. It's going to be a part of our lives. But in the midst of the heartache, the presence of Jesus can be incredibly real. And at times in our lives, God uses these desperate moments to drive us to seek Him in ways that we haven't um, when everything's going very smooth. But it's important for us to remember, trust in Jesus in both the joys and in the sorrows of our lives. Let's look at the next thing. Look at 49. So I love this man. He's undeterred. So Jesus has just rebuked him. You just want me to do a sign. You don't want to believe in me. You just want a sign. And so the official... He just said, and and don't miss that three-letter word there that starts with S. Sir. Does he see Jesus as the Son of God? No. He's a respectful man. Sir. He doesn't say Savior. doesn't say Son of God. doesn't say all-sufficient one, whatever it is. He just said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so he's not moved yet to a place of faith. Sir, come down before my child dies. And 50 says, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And again, I love this man. He's been rebuked. He asked anyway to be able to come. I remember I was seven years old. Texas Stadium, near Texas Stadium. Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Banquet. My dad was a football coach. He had gotten these tickets and we went. We went in to this breakfast. I was seven, just a little video thing. And sat down, and as I sat down, I looked behind me, and about six feet from me at another table was Roger Staubach, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. I was a seven-year-old. I wanted to be a quarterback, and there he was six feet away from me. And I'm like, gosh, I want to go talk to him. And the people at my table, the other adults at my table said, don't go talk to him. Leave him alone. And I looked at my dad, and my dad said, And when my dad did that, that meant, okay, I had the freedom to go do whatever. And so I got myself out of the chair, and I went over to Roger Staubach, and I tapped him on the shoulder. And he turned around. And he said, hey, son, what's your name? I told him, Doak. Hey, good football name. Yes, it's a good football name. And then he picked me up, his hands under my shoulders right here, and sat me on the chair that he was. And I have a picture on my office in there of me standing on a chair and Roger Staubach's arm around me. And I tell that story to say this. Be like this man. Come to Jesus and knock. Ask him. Jesus has just rebuked him and he's like, okay, yeah, you're right. You've called me out. I just want a sign. But will you still come? And the beauty of Jesus is he meets us where we are. This man was not ready for belief, but he was getting there. So Jesus meets him where he is. And here's the sixth thing. There is a power 
that rests in trusting in the Word of Christ. And so this man's come 20 miles. He thinks 40 miles is what's needed. He's come 20 miles. He's going to get Jesus. He's going to go back 20 miles. 40 miles will bring this. And Jesus is going to tell him, no, I, I don't even need 20 miles to go with you. I don't need anything. I just need to speak. So Jesus doesn't even travel one mile with the man. We don't even know if he travels one foot with the man. You see, Jesus has a power that's beyond a physical presence. And so in verse 45, the official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And then in verse 50, Jesus said, Well, go. Your son will live. And so Jesus has a power beyond a physical presence. And secondly, His word, therefore, is power. As I said a while ago, Jesus will meet us at our point of need, but we need to see that in these moments that He's wanting to do more than just something in that moment. He wants to impact the rest of our lives to do something deep inside of us. And so He meets the man where He is. He meets you and I where we are. Now, listen to this. The man has come 20 miles. I don't know how fast it takes you to walk 20 miles, but I would think several hours at least if you're going to walk 20 miles in a day and so the man has come and he's got a plan and when he gets to Jesus his plan is okay I'm going to convince him that he's going to come back with me and he's going to come back with me and my plan's going to work because if I can just watch if I can just get him to Capernaum then the potential for my son being healed will happen and watch what Jesus does the man's got a plan of what he wants Jesus to do and Jesus says nope I'm not going to be a part of that plan. I'm not going back with you. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to walk down the street with you. But here's what I'll tell you to do. Just turn around from me, and I want you to go home, and your son's going to live. He's, he's going to be healed right now as I speak this. You see, so often in our lives, we probably have done this. You calendar people bother me. I'm not a calendar people person and I know calendar people I bother calendar people because I'm not a calendar person we need to be careful that we're not writing on the calendar what God ought to do when he ought to do it by the time frame because he just kind of does his God thing and we want him to do his God thing because if he was if we could control him then he's not God And so the man's got a plan. I'm going to convince you to come with me. And Jesus says, well, I'm not coming with you. You just need to go home. And your son and your son will live. See, the great challenge for all of us in the room today is we'll either doubt the person and the promises of Jesus or we will believe the person and the promises of Jesus. We have two options. And Jesus is calling the man to leave the kind of faith that was dependent upon signs to believe. And the father now, watch this, has to take Jesus at his word, which is actually the most secure place that you could stand. I'm just going to trust in what Jesus says. That's the better, stronger place. And just like the father 
You and I must put aside how we think Jesus ought to work things with our kids, with our family, with our marriage, with our job, with our money, with our government, with COVID-19, whatever the case may be. Let's just set stuff aside and let's let Jesus be Jesus. Let's let him do the things that he can do and let's just trust that he's sovereign and when he speaks and when he works, it can be trusted in. So let me remind you of an illustration. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a Syrian captain of the guard his name is Naaman and he has leprosy he has a Jewish girl who's a slave working in his house and she says to her master Naaman there's a prophet named Elisha and if you'll go see him he has the power to heal your leprosy so Naaman gets together a reward and he goes down to where Elisha is and he goes to Elisha's house And he's going to give Elisha this reward. And he wants Elisha to come out. And he wants Elisha to stand up and wave his hands and call out the name of his God. And and, and Naaman's leprosy will be healed. Well, this is Naaman's plan. He's set up for how he wants to be fixed. And Elisha's like, "Eh, I'm not leaving the house. And Elisha sends a servant out to tell Naaman, hey, go to the river Jordan and dip in it seven times. And if you'll follow that, then you will be healed. Well, Naaman becomes enraged. He's like, are you kidding me? There are better rivers than the Jordan River in Syria. I can go back to Syria and dip myself in better rivers than the Jordan River seven times. And enraged, he walks away and he's going to go back to Syria. His servants chase after him. And this is what happens. This is 2 Kings 5.13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? They're like, basically, are you crazy? This man of God who does powerful things has told you to go dip in the river. Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And so they get Naaman's attention. It says, so he went down. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little little child. And he was clean. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Hear this today, church. Christ's word in the New Testament era is as good as his physical presence. It was the same 2,000 years ago in Cana that day. Sir, go home. Your son will live. So when he promises, it's as good as his presence. Because his word is tied to his nature. It's tied to who he is. And his word can clean us. A couple more things. Look at 50, second part. Must have been hard. He had had a plan. Jesus wasn't going to follow his plan. Now he had to trust Jesus' plan, not the man's plan. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down... His servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now watch this. So, seventh hour, Jesus says, go, your son will live. All the way 20 miles away in Capernaum. At the seventh hour, as soon as Jesus says that, guess what happens with the son? He's healed. Celebration happens in Capernaum. Gosh, look what's happened. He's, he's, he's reviving. He, he's not going to die now. Those people leave Capernaum. They're heading to Cana. The man's in Cana. He's heading back to Capernaum, and they meet on the road. 
and they start sharing stories. So in 52 it says, So he asked him the hour that it began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father must have smiled in this moment. Look at 53. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. It's interesting in 52 there it says, Yesterday the servant said. So the man couldn't even make it back in that same day. He had to sleep somewhere overnight. And as he laid his head down wherever he slept that night, he had to trust the word of Jesus. Because there was no texting, hey, he's healed. There was no FaceTiming, hey, look, here's your son. He laid his head down and said, I'm going to believe what that man told me, that my son would live. And I love what happens next. Look at fifty last part of 53 and 54, and we'll finish here. And he himself believed. That is so powerful. And all his household. Now look up here. So in that moment, talking with the people, he realizes, when Jesus told me to go, my son will live. And those, that very moment, I know what time it was, was the very moment that my son was healed. And in that moment, he recognizes, this is not sir, teacher man, this is savior of the world. And it says he believed. And then look what it says next. And all his household. So guess what he did? He told the gospel. He told everybody in his house what had happened in Cana. And they probably told what happened in Capernaum. And as he told the story, there was belief. Now, I love this part because it's strongly implied in all his household. Guess who also must have come to faith that day? The boy that was about to die. Every member of the household of the royal official of King Herod's house believed. And it says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And the last thing I want to say is this. Ask the Lord to save your family. If you've got a parent, you've got an uncle, you've got a cousin, you've got a brother, sister, a spouse, a kid, ask the Lord to save everybody. Everybody. We had a lady who was in the last service. She lives in this house right here. They started coming to the church. She came up to me afterward and said, that story is my story. When, when my father was about to die, We prayed, I came to faith, and God did something in my father's life, and my whole family got saved through that. See, he's still about those things today. Asking to save our family. Sometimes it might be immediate. Sometimes it might be four years. But is it not worth it when he does it? And so the man had to trust the word of Jesus not in a miracle. And that's the call for us in our lives as well. Let's pray.